Welcome to the Jay Kim Show. This is your host, Jay Kim. I am an investor, author, and fitness entrepreneur. And for the first time in Asia, I sit down with the world's most brilliant minds in business, investing, and entrepreneurship. You'll learn all the secrets, strategies, and formulas to becoming a successful entrepreneur directly from the masters. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insight to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. In this episode, we speak with Danny Young, who is one of Hong Kong's local heroes, a serial entrepreneur who is best known for having exited a group buying company that he started in 2010 called You Buy, I Buy. Danny sold his company to Groupon only six months after he launched it. He was not the first player in this market in Hong Kong at the time, but his company was the best executor. After the exit, Danny agreed to stay on for four years as the CEO of Groupon East Asia. But once again, he got the entrepreneurial itch and decided to leave to start a company, this time in a completely new industry, biotech. His latest startup is called Prenetics, which falls under the larger umbrella of pharmacogenomics. Pharmacogenomics is essentially the testing and analysis of a person's DNA to understand exactly how his or her body will respond to certain medication. Danny is building a very interesting company. He'll be one of the speakers at the Health Tech event this Friday, January 20th, which is part of the Start Me Up Hong Kong 2017 festival. Let's get on to the show. Danny, thank you so much for joining us today on the J. Kim Show, where we discuss entrepreneurship in Asia. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Uh, and perhaps for our audience uh, who in Hong Kong probably has heard of you, but perhaps outside in the region or maybe listening in from the U.S. or in Europe, maybe you can give us a little uh, introduction on who you are and how you became an entrepreneur. Thanks, Jay, for having me on the show. I'm very excited to be here today. For well, my background-wise, I started entrepreneurship at the age of 12, I would say, uh, when I started selling baseball cards um, after school. Mm. So uh, that was when I really uh, realized about you know, buying low and selling high. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so did that you know, very early. Uh, of course, yeah, that was I, I didn't think of it as an entrepreneurship at that time. Uh, but reflecting back, I think that's my first foray. Um, then I started working once at the age of 15 um, as a telemarketer at AT and started working in internet companies. Um, that was really when I really thought technology and how it's really impacting a lot of lives at the early stage. Mm-hmm. And at the age of 25, I started my first uh, true business selling Hong Kong style desserts in San Francisco. Ah, okay, so how did you manage that whole thing? How did you even stumble upon that idea? And uh, obviously, how did you generate that connection to bring that over? Sure. Um, so I think ideas always an inspiration of something that we see, hear, or feel, right? Mm. Um, so with that inspiration, I was traveling once a year back to Hong Kong, and I really liked this Hong Kong dessert chain called Hui Lo San, mm-hmm. uh, San in Mandarin. Yep. And I was like, wow, this is you know really good stuff. How come it's not available in San Francisco where I used to live? Just by that thought process, hey, you know, somebody should do it. And then I was like, hey, why not me? Um, and then, so that's where I had the original idea. Then I co-called Hui Lo San in Hong Kong. I was like, hey, you know, this is Danny from San Francisco. I'm very interested. See if you guys would be interested in franchising right. your store into Hong Kong, given San Francisco has a large um, 
Chinese population. Mm-hmm. So there would already be high brand awareness, right, right off the bat. Right, right. And certainly, yeah, they said, oh, okay, this you know, young kid that's uh, you know stupid young kid wants to pay us. <laughs> and for them, it's, I mean, they were a very family oriented business. They didn't have much to lose. Right. And then you know, for us, for, for myself, it was like a very good opportunity to start uh, uh, my first business. Yeah. Definitely. So, so Danny, can we let's take a, a a little bit of a step back because this is something that I like to discuss on on this show is is the entrepreneurship mentality and culture within within Asian culture. So, so you know, I think for the most part, um, and I speak from I'm I'm U.S. I'm from the states, and my my parents were first generation immigrants into the U.S. and so entrepreneurship to them was not in the realm of possibility for me it was it was they they were first generation immigrants they were doing everything they could to provide food on the table and so their solution for me was to go to school get a good job and then their job would be done so it wasn't encouraged it definitely you know it would have been difficult for me to just say hey mom and dad i'm gonna go try to start a business uh, instead of going to work on wall street or becoming a doctor right Mm -hmm. so how was that whole process in your family and did you find resistance or did you find support from your family from your immediate family for you to become an entrepreneur well um actually jay i I actually share a lot of what you went through Mm. yeah in terms of even even my parents were not entrepreneurs right uh you know we immigrated to the u.s in 1984 Mm. um so i always i mean growing up i always saw basically you know they were always constantly working um, and right. I really wanted to actually not always constantly working, but I wanted to actually do something really impactful mm-hmm. uh, and basically, you know, work smartly um, and at the same, at one time be able to provide a great future for myself, my parents and my family uh, via entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly I think in the beginning, they were always uh, not so receptive to entrepreneurship. But I think once I showed them a little bit of traction, a little bit of success, then each reiteration along the, the path, uh, they they come to accept it. Yeah, and of course, each each new entrepreneur, new business idea I take in, I mean, the, the risk becomes greater and greater. Right. Uh, but I think you know, given given the, the experience, the, the track record, uh, I I can't see another path besides entrepreneurship for myself right now. Yeah, I think that. Um you bring up a good point because I think this resonates with a lot of entrepreneurs that perhaps have gone through the same sort of family background and struggle to prove themselves. But in the end, whatever it is, whether it's schooling or maybe it's your first job or your first few entrepreneurial pursuits, at some point you have to prove yourself. You know, your parents aren't just going to, it doesn't matter if your parents are conservative Mm -hmm. or liberal Asian, Western, you know, you still have to somehow prove yourself that you are capable and competent to, to go off into your own business. And I think that that can come in different forms. Some, some parents are open, you know, right after school to let them try, let their kids try and fail. Other people are more conservative and they say, when you make all your money first in a stable corporate job, then you can try something else entrepreneurial. So um, I, found that, I find that fascinating. But uh, luckily, at a, at a young age, you proved yourself. Uh, apparently and you were able to uh to to start the dessert business okay so you have you've done that so that was your sort of first real entrepreneurial pursuit now let's talk about your next one which is uh which is probably the one that brought you to hong kong that that most people are are know you by right one before that which was the hotel furniture business 
And then, so that was also my opportunity as well, right? So, I mean, each of the businesses that I've worked on in the past or created was never things that I actually intended to do. It was just like, you know, opportunistic. It's like, hey, I saw an opportunity and I'll try and see if it actually works and, and just you know, make sure that I'm very knowledgeable about that. Um, so the hotel furniture business came upon after about three years I was doing um, the dessert in, in San Francisco. Um, it was okay, but, you know, basically wasn't, to the point where it was like an awesome business mm. um, and which basically didn't scale to you know, 20, 30 stores, which was my original ambition. It was still very profitable, uh, but it couldn't get to 20, 30 stores. Right. Um, so I had an opportunity to do a hotel furniture business via a friend, which was basically designing hotel furniture. Um, and she needed help basically uh, sourcing for furniture. So what did you do with the dessert business? Were you able to exit that? Sold it to my cousin, actually. Oh, okay. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Keep it in the family. <laughs> uh, so and, and with the hotel furniture business, I actually had zero background. Right, Each of the businesses, I had zero background um, in it. Um, so at that time, how I actually found factories to start sourcing uh, was via Alibaba. Oh, okay. At that time, it was actually not like Alibaba today, right? Right. It's like, yeah, the original 1.0 Alibaba. Right, right. It was like very few people actually knew what Alibaba was. That's right. Uh, yeah, but I thought, hey, you know, this is a good, good platform. Uh, yeah, I was able to find suppliers there. And basically, I was bridging the gap and, and sourcing from China and selling back to hotels in the United States. Wow. Okay. Certainly, the first year I was there was immensely tough um, as a new company. Yeah, doing hotel furniture, you're, you're, you're against a lot of the much bigger established uh, hotel furniture companies. Right. Uh, but, you know, do lots of cold calling, lots of, you know, begging people to take meetings and lots of, you know, perseverance. I was able to show uh, value by the, basically the, how you understand the customer, their needs and the customer journey. And also certainly uh, have good uh, furniture produced for your customers. Right. So what was your value proposition there? Was it both price and sort of aesthetic design that you could customize to what they wanted? Or, you know, because I, I'm imagined that most hotels would have sourced very stock type uh, furniture, right? These are customized design furniture. Right? Mm. Um, and then so certainly one thing I think that was key I did, and I can, you know, like, given this is an entrepreneur uh, uh, show, uh, one thing I did do at that time um, so I negotiated with the China factory to let me use their name um, as a company in the U.S. Ah, I see. Okay. So to the end user, it was not seen like a middleman. I was just directly basically employed by the factory in the China, but I was basically the, the head office. In ah, very smart. <laughs> right, because certainly I think it's key that... You know, when I mean, we, we eventually worked with MGM City Center, I mean, which is like a, a, a you know, five billion dollar USD project, right? Uh, we furnish over two thousand units of everything when you flip upside the room. So when you're talking about that scale, that type of companies, they don't want to work for a middleman; they afford to go direct, right? Yeah, definitely. Their minds were always direct. Well, that's very uh, that's very smart, uh, savvy of you to uh, to negotiate being able to use that brand. Okay, and so. So you did that, and then uh, again, once again, you decided that you wanted to. You had a entrepreneurial itch, so you decided that it was time to move back to Hong Kong. So, what happened to the furniture business, and what led you to Hong Kong? Sure. So, I mean, basically, I mean, after the financial crisis, you know, the large hotels they weren't building as many hotels as they used to, right? I mean, a lot of them actually they couldn't get financing. 
I was still doing okay, you know, for, uh, working on you know, small hotels, not the 2,000 hotels. Um, and then um, I just, you know, one of my cl- close friends just sent me a link uh, telling me about Groupon. Mm. Um, and this was basically in 2010, uh, February of 2010. Yep. The link basically said they just raised $950 million USD. <laughs> Uh, and I was looking at their business model. Wow, this is a very simple business model. I love the idea of it right. that you can actually, you know, gain market, gain customers uh, to your restaurant. Certainly, that's what I did previously. So I saw the value in that right away. Right. Uh, and I was like, wow, that's a lot of money at that time. We were talking about in 2010. Even though right now is a lot of money, but there's tons more companies raising that much amount or even billions more. Right. Yep. In 2010, there was like the, this was Groupon was the you know talk of the, the internet world. Yes. So I was thinking, wow, great idea. I love the idea. And then the first thing I did after I, I uh, read that link, I called up my cousin and said, "Can we do a Groupon deal in your store? I just want to test it out. I want to see the user experience. See if this really brings new customers in." Right. And within one week, we were able to set up a deal. Uh, the results were 500 new customers bought a voucher in basically 24 hours. And within the next day, the restaurant got, the dessert chain got new customers. So this was where, this was in Hong Kong? In San Francisco. You, okay, so you actually beta tested it in San Francisco. Yeah, I was always living in San Francisco. Right. Okay, okay. I was, yeah. I was always living in San Francisco. So I beta tested it in San Francisco in 2010, February. Uh, by March first, I was. I mean, by March first, I was already on a plane to Hong Kong. Mm. Uh, so within a span of one month, I, I packed my bags. I, you know, the furniture business. I actually negotiated with the factory mm-hmm. to give me royalties for a certain number of years after I left. Wow, nice. Uh, so because basically my value was the customers, right? Right. Um, so I had that, and then but I really knew that I needed to be in Hong Kong because I could. I loved the idea, but I couldn't. There's no way for me to compete in the U.S. against Groupon, right? Right. So I had to choose. It's like, hey, where would this business model make sense? Mm, perfect. Launch yet that I can yep. go to and basically launch the model. Right. right so I moved to Hong Kong March second, two thousand ten. Uh, by June twenty eighth, uh, on June twenty eighth, two thousand ten, we had our first deals live in Hong Kong and Taiwan. That's very fast. That's very very fast speed to market. Um, you know, execution. And I, I think you, you mentioned before, um, none of this call, but, you know, and previously, you, I know you've mentioned that when you arrived, you definitely weren't the only player yes. in this group buying space, right? There was, there was already a ton, right? When I, when I planned that I wanted to be in Hong Kong, there was probably none. But even within that, you know, one, two, one, two month gap, there was already, I think we were the fourth company that launched, mm-hmm. right? And then, Within three months after we launched, at one point there was fifty-seven competitors doing group buying in Hong Kong. <laughs> Hong Kong's not a big place, right? Right, right. So what? So what made the difference? How did you accelerate your growth to the point where you got on Groupon's radar for the exit? You know, how would you differentiate yourself from the fifty-seven, however many other competitors that were out there? Well, number one, I think we were the market leader already from first day until when we were actually acquired. Mm. Um, I mean, we, our revenues were growing crazy. Um, yeah, so we're definitely by far number one market leader. And I think I was the only one that out of all the 57 actually cold called Groupon CEO Andrew Mason at the time. Wow, nice. And so uh, it, it was just one random night. And I remember in, in September, it was 1 a.m. in the office. I was like, hey, it'd be interesting if I call uh, uh, Groupon and ask for Andrew Mason, see what he would say. Of course, he didn't pick up the phone, mm-hmm. and, and I left a message saying, "You know, this is Danny. Um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm a company called you bye bye. Uh, like to see if you guys are interested in a partnership. Right. I didn't oh, okay. anything of it, uh, but seven days later, someone emailed me back said they were from their M and A team. It's like you left a message for Andrew. Yeah, you know, how can I help? And then just you know, gave them some stats on what we we're doing. Uh, they found it very interesting, and exciting. Uh, and then so we then they flew me out to Chicago a few weeks after that. That's how it got started. Wow, I've never heard that that part of this story. I mean, I think a lot of people, have, you know, they know about your exit to Groupon, but they don't actually know how, how you, how you, how you nailed it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. You have to start somewhere. Right. So it was, yeah, of course, you know, a few close friends know about that story. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with, uh, with, with the audience. I think that's, that's fantastic because I think that the ability to, you know, it's, it's, it's sales. It's basically what you did, you know, like as a startup founder, as an entrepreneur, you have to always be selling, right. And you, you have to be able to have that thick skin and be, be pounding the pavement, picking up phone call, cold calling people, be able to just deal with rejection and not let it bother you and just keep going and keep going and keep going. It sounds like you did just that uh, to, to secure this exit, right? But correct. And, and exactly. I always refer to sales as it's a science, right? You can't be selling. You have to provide information and let other people make that decision. Mm. Right? And even a lot of times today when people find me on LinkedIn or, you know, I actually appreciate them finding or researching things about myself because it shows a real willingness. It shows a proactiveness yep. to how their thought process is. Yep. Okay? That's right. Mm -hmm. Exited Groupon. So that, so it was essentially later that year that you, that you exited. Yeah. So basically um, we, we launched June 28, 2010, uh, after six months on a monthly basis, even before the exit, we were already doing 1 million USD monthly revenue. Wow. Um, yeah, and, we, and we only had 11 people at that time. Right. So they acquired a majority stake in the company in 2010. Mm. And we had 11 people. When I left Groupon, we were already doing about 130 million annual revenue. Uh, I was overseeing about 300 people when I left in 2014. Wow. Okay. They, they basically took over and they kept you on for X amount of years. Was that the arrangement? Yes, correct. So it was a three-year best. Okay. Um, and of course, you know, through the three years they provided uh, uh, this capital of course you know they pretty much on in terms of the business size let us execute in terms of the mm -hmm. business size and just um, using the resources that they're given to us right okay wow so so basically and this was you and your partners as well like everyone the original team had to stay on for the three years when we started it was i was the only operational guy mm. Okay. And, but certainly me and my partners, we funded the company 950,000 USD originally to get started. Right. right? Okay. Um, that's pretty interesting. So, and then, so four years you stayed on, you waited till your, till the vesting was over. And then at some point you were, I guess the entrepreneurial itch came up again and you decided that you wanted to try something else, right? Yeah. So certainly, I mean, at one point, I mean, you know, I think, uh, I always knew after the investment pair I would you know, do something again because it's just, I mean, I, 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 I knew that industry in and out, right? Right. There wasn't new stuff that we were going to be learning. And you know, I think at that time too, Groupon stopped being innovative, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think if you think about it, I mean, in 2010, they were already valued at $6 billion company. Right. Um, today, they're valued at $3 billion. Right. And at the same time, Airbnb was valued at 3 They went to 30 Right. Yep. <laughs> and I mean, even Uber wasn't even around, I think, in 2010. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, so, and when I left, it was, I think, the innovation 
constantly has to happen. That's right. Uh, around any company, uh, even if you're a large company, because then that's the biggest fear or biggest risk is the lack of innovation. That's what really happened. Um, and so certainly when I left, I started, you know, the natural thing was basically to take a little bit of a break um, and started investing in early stage companies. Right. Um, which I did, but I got a little bit bored of that after you know, a few months. And it's like, hey, because I, I still felt like, you know, I, I still have a lot of drive, a lot of, a lot of yeah. motivation, you know, a, lot, a lot of commitment to give. So I really looked into, hey, what are some interesting uh, industries that I haven't done before? Right. And which I think could make a significant impact. So I looked into um, education and healthcare. Uh, because these are two industries which also in Asia, there's not that many entrepreneurs tackling the space. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that, um, so education, I know for, you know, I've looked into that myself personally, and it's a huge, huge, uh, you know, vertical that I'm very interested in myself personally. And then when you say healthcare, usually, so now this is where, this is, this is interesting because to me, because it seems like you tackled, like you literally aggressively went after one of the hardest segments in the market to go after. I mean, I'm not, I don't know if you have any sort of medical background. It seems like you don't. I, I don't, I do not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what made you want to literally dive headfirst into healthcare and say, you know what, I'm going to go tackle that. You have to try, you have to give it a shot first, right? And then mm. certainly I think what my experience, I, I, certainly I don't think I would have been able to do that with the previous um, three businesses experience. Right. Because if you think about it, each business, regardless of what industry it is, how do you provide value, a really strong value proposition, and how do you solve the supply and demand on both sides? Mm. Right, it, it comes down to the core of it. So um, certainly, I felt that if we had a very strong value proposition in place, uh, then it's something that you know both consumers and you know, customers and, and on the supply and demand side, both sides would win-win, right? Right, right. And that's where I, where I saw genetics and genomic testing as something that, you know, the awareness level in the U.S. is much higher. Um, but as current, where even today in Asia-wise or Southeast Asia more specifically, is still quite low. Right. So, so that was my next question. You just led right into it. So let's talk about Renetics, your current company that you're building, and what exactly is pharmacogenomics? Yeah. So I would say actually, um, Prenetics is is, not, is basically. Um, so currently, Prenetics, uh, was, I looked, I, I co-founded basically in two thousand fourteen. Mm -hmm. um, basically, what we did was uh, there was an existing company um, called Multi-Chain Diagnostics Limited. It was around since two thousand and nine. In two thousand fourteen, the professors and scientists came to me uh, for funding. Okay. I found that very, very interesting, very exciting, very passionate team, um, but they were lacking on the commercial side. Um, so this is where you know, me and my few close friends would put in uh, our, our own funds into the company, mm. uh, about two point three million USD at a time. Wow. Okay. Uh, and then it's like, you know, we'll fund you guys, but on one condition that I, I you know, come on board and we rebrand the name, change everything around, and basically I joined on board as the day to day CEO. And so at that time, the company had eleven people and it was struggling on, on a commercial basis. For two years today, um, which is about really literally two years, 24 months ago, uh, we are now the largest um, genetic testing digital health company in Southeast Asia. Wow. Uh, we have a team of over 55 people. We own and operate our own 8,000 square feet genetics laboratory uh, in Hong Kong. 
Wow. What we do is we are focused on utilizing uh, mobile technology along with DNA technology and creating digital solution programs for large insurance companies. Mm. Uh, so what we reply is really on prevention, right? So because how we look at it is that healthcare is is a, is is transforming, right? I think previously a lot of care was focused on treatment. Uh, so once once something happens, then you're treated and you go to, you you and everything gets well, right? Right. If we look at it, prevention is a much greater need because if you're able to prevent something, nobody really wants to go see a doctor. Nobody really wants to make a claim to your insurer unless right. it's to. Yes. So what we do is so we have multiple tests that we've launched last year. Uh, first test we launched last year is called the iGenes test. So this is a DNA test to identify the most optimal drug response in individuals. Mm. And so this test, what the problem this solves is adverse drug reactions. Right. Because uh, typically if you go to the doctor today, the doctor will say, hey, you know, here's some medication. If it doesn't work, come back in one, two, three weeks. Tell me how you feel. I'll switch your drug. Mm-hmm. Due to uh, new technologies and, and the drop in cost of DNA sequencing, we can perform a DNA test on that individual and tell you which drugs will hurt you, uh, which drugs will help you before you even take it. That's that's really uh, that's very powerful. And I, I, you know, even if it's even when you go down to the the very basic level of non-prescription drugs, I even personally, I've taken, for example, a very simple example is uh, allergy medicine. Yeah. Sometimes I take certain allergy medicines and it's just really it, it overwhelms me and i can't handle it it just makes me feel really bad whereas others it just works very well right. so this is a perfect example where i could use some some of your testing to uh to, to figure out exactly which one i should take right uh, exactly and this is really due to the way individuals metabolize right so there's four different metabolizer states uh ranging from very fast intermediate normal and poor metabolizers Mm. So the way individual metabolize, that's the way a medication is absorbed into your body. And so that explains the differences in uh, reactions towards each individual. Granted, the majority of people are normal metabolizers. So we're talking about 60% of the population are normal. Right. And that's what happens to the other 40%. They're not normal. Right. So they'll struggle in some way when they take the, take the drug the same way as... as um the, the way that the 60% would not Correct. be affected, right? And, and that's why on all drug labels, you will see hey, there may be these conditions, right? <laughs> right. So but why do we ask in the future? I mean, if you're, we're looking at like technology today, why, why are we still taking this trial and error approach? Right. Wow. Okay. Okay. So, so what is, uh, so at what stage are you now? So you have the drug, you have the tests that are available for, I guess, for the medical community at this point? Uh, yes. And insurance companies. Insurance companies. Okay. Yeah. And so this is fully, I mean, this is this is a product available that is, is out there. Yeah, it's out there for insurance. Uh, so right now, we, I mean, our business model has focused mainly on insurance customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just due to that we're able to get significant scale with them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and certainly, I mean, I think, you know, certainly we, we wanted to say which parties had the most best interest, right, to have healthier uh, policyholders and patients or customers can ultimately benefit as well, right? So that's a big, so insurance is obviously a huge segment um, for you. So what, what, what do you have? Uh, let's look at Pernetics 2017. What are your goals for this year for your company? Um, and, you know, what sort of, the next question after that is, what sort of trends and opportunities do you see in the, in the coming years uh, for your company? So um, in 2017, we're more and more moving 
and transforming ourselves from a purely genetic testing company to a digital health company. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that encompasses is that you know we have new testers on the market. Um, so we launched uh, my DNA you know, basically late last year. That is a genetic test on to understand how uh, nutrients, vitamins, and diets are affected by your DNA. Mm. And this also plays a role into your exercise, right? So certainly not uh, one diet doesn't fit for everyone. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So we can actually figure that out with your genetics. Uh, and along with that information, we've created digital apps. And of course, that's my background in e-commerce and such to help you continually engage yourself. Mm, that's great. Yeah. For example, it gives you an on-demand dietitian. So if you have any questions about DNA report or if you want to have trouble losing weight, you know, at the, at, within your mobile phone, you have a, a dietitian on, on demand. Wow, that, that, that could be very, very cool and very uh, highly sought after, uh, especially when it's you know it's for you because it's by DNA. Yes, so. it's very personalized, right? Mm-hmm. To be able mm-hmm. to see how you absorb you know, carbohydrates, right? For example, I'm highly sensitive to carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Right? So I, I did, I mean, everyone knows that a, you know, consuming too much is, is not good, but it's your own data. And by me limiting carbohydrates, a very simple thing I did, I still hate it. I lost like 12 pounds uh, you know, within a good eight weeks period of time. Wow. Nice. Just because it's you're, you're sensitive to it, so you're much more prone to it is so than a normal individual. Yeah, this is this is all this sort of data is very powerful because it can literally change your life, right? If you yeah, use right. it, apply it properly, and then you can then use the data on a, and and to achieve an optimal diet based upon your genetics. Right. Right. And for 2017, our goals are to basically um, have overseas expansion uh, throughout Southeast Asia. Um, so we're looking to basically growing our team size from about 55 people. We expect to be over 100 people by the by year's end uh, and have a presence in uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia. Wow, very nice. And which are all big. I mean, that's basically you're hitting all the big insurance, uh, all the insurance companies. Those are their big uh, markets as well, right? So Correct. It, it, it falls in line. Okay. And then... Uh, and then let's say two to five years time. Uh, what 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 plans do you have for the company? If are you are you actively searching for an exit? Are you looking bigger? Are you looking IPO? Will you be Hong Kong's first unicorn? <laughs> the million dollar billion dollar question. Yeah. So I mean, right now we're we're definitely not looking for an exit. Uh, I mean, it's way too early. I'm having you know, having so much fun doing what I'm doing right now and just seeing the potential. Because I think well, what's very different between this company and, and my previous companies, I, I see a, a much needed gap in terms of what's available today and what should be available. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's in really the way how we treat healthcare. Yep. Uh, I think so we have a lot of opportunity for that. Uh, yeah, and, and so we are well positioned um, to do that. I would also feel that where we, where we are today, given our traction, our momentum uh, and our current uh, partnerships, um, our current, current infrastructure that would be set up, uh, we're well positioned to be a, a, a dominant leader in that position in the space of ge- genetic testing and digital health um, across Southeast Asia. Uh, so right now we're just fully focused on growing the team all throughout. Um, also, certainly we have a, a full pipeline of new products that we want to launch out later this year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and always you know, looking ahead, uh, you know, two, three, four, five years down the road. Um, so we're properly well positioned for that and, and continue to innovate on our current products. That's great. Good answer. <laughs> um, uh, one last question for you, uh, Danny, and I, I do appreciate your time. Um, so you've you've you obviously 
a serial entrepreneur, very successful. You had, you know, a number of companies that have done very well in very different markets. If you were to give one piece of advice to a young aspiring entrepreneur that has, you know, perhaps followed you and seen how you went into these companies and these these markets that you knew nothing about, but somehow you've you went in with such zeal and such determination that you were able to create successful companies and 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 either exit them or or sell them. What, what's one piece of advice that you would give to uh, some of our younger entrepreneurial audiences that, that aspire to be like you? Mm-hmm. I would say always focus in on the customer, right? Mm. Think from the customer perspective. What is it that you can bring to the table to your customer that you can add value? Right? Because I think a lot of times is if you're able to understand a customer's mindset, and you pretend you're the customer, hey, how can I actually get that sale? What is it that, you're, uh, that you could gain from the value proposition? So it has to understand what other companies are out in the market and how you differentiate. So what's the, your unique selling uh, proposition? How, why are you better? Why should your potential customer choose you versus not the other companies? Yeah. So if new entrepreneurs is like really understand the unique selling proposition and not look at it from themselves, step into the customer's shoes. That's something I always tell my team is that every single time we talk to a customer, that's an opportunity for us to shine, for us to deliver more than we promised and continue to always deliver that so they'll see, wow, these guys are awesome. Wise words. Thank you, Danny. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I had a really good time catching up with you. Um, Where can people find you, connect with you uh, on social media or website if there's anywhere they want to find a little bit more about what you do at Pernetics? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, definitely can connect me with LinkedIn. Um, okay. Danny Young, Hong Kong. All right, and your and your uh, and your your company website's Pernetics.com, right? Right, Pernetics.com. Okay, fantastic. Okay. Thank you again, Danny, for your time. Uh, and Danny, you are speaking on Friday at during the Health Tech Vertical. Is that right? Yes, correct. Okay, so so uh, guys and gals, go over to um, you can you can go online and you can look up on the Start Me Up Hong Kong 2017 Festival website. You can get your tickets there for the Health Tech Vertical, which is this coming Friday, January 20th, and Danny will be one of the keynote speakers. Thanks again for your time, Danny. Much appreciated, and uh, we're going to have a really good time this week, so take care. Thank you, Jay. All right. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often, and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week. This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? 
After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness.